Can you guys hear that siren in the background? Definitely. Yeah, we can hear the sirens. You saucy minx. Sorry, that's really inappropriate. Can you guys hear the plane in the background of my house? Can you hear the helicopter? No. No. We've got um, all the vehicles making noises. It's just because you've moved to the you've li- moved to the, literally the middle of Sydney CBD hustle bustle sex in the city life. Yeah. It's amazing. We live for it. We're honored to hear these atmosphers in the background. It's yeah. quite extraordinary. As someone who lives in the burbs, so. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Fierce Females of History podcast, where we tell the stories of women from history that you should know about. I'm Lucy. I'm Erin. And I'm Talissa. I always feel like a little kid when I say that. <laughs> like, and I'm Talissa. Ooh, I hate <laughs> and my favourite colour is purple. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least it doesn't sound like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Not that I have anything against those, but uh, I don't know actually what's better now I come to think of it. <laughs> I think just get the support that you need. Get the support that you need. Whether you are a child or an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, just, there's no shame in asking for help at all. Whatever no. stage of life you're in. Oh, so how have you guys been? Pretty busy as always, but good. Busy but moving. That's what I like to tell people these days. Busy but moving. Mm. It sounds grim. Um, um, do you know they found a link this week between stress and uh, your immune system not being as good as it could be? Because stress sends these things into your brain which stop the immune cells from doing their job properly because the nerve receptors are like... And so um, that's the science. Yeah, and it also, it also attributes to weight gain, which I'm trying to ignore. Well, my body's my temple, and so whatever size the temple may be, in old times, the bigger the temple, the better the thing was going. So, Put that yep. on my grave, baby. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Amen. <laughs> All right. Speaking of history, who is doing this week? Talissa. Okay. This week, I'm going to be telling the story of a woman named B. Arthur. Oh, from the Golden Girls. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, from the Golden Girls. <laughs> Um, except she wasn't just a golden gal. She had a lot of different things that she did with her life. And it started in 1922 when she was born. She was born on May 13 in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, her mum's name was Rebecca and she was from Austria and her father was from Poland. Raised Jewish and she had two sisters, Gertrude and Marion, and she was the middle child. Um, Bernice hated her name because all the boys in her town, well, not all the boys, obviously, that'd be really weird. Every but- single one of them, everyone. <laughs> Let's say all of them just for context. All of them yeah. in Brooklyn. Every man in Brooklyn was named Bernice. Um, and she hated it. She was like, well, that's a boy name, obviously. Um, so she decided to change it to Beatrice or short for B. Right. Um, at 11, the depression worsened because it was, you know, the 30s. And so her family decided to relocate to Maryland where her rents ended up running a women's clothing store as a way to make some ends meet. Her rents. Her rents. A little bit yeah. of lingo there. Yeah. I'm trying to keep it cool, shawty. Thank you. <laughs> shawty. We watch a lot of um, Superstore and it's like a lot of like awkward white people trying to be cool. A lot of what? Superstore. 
Have you ever seen it on Netflix? Oh, Superstore. Everyone says to watch it. It's on it's, my list. It's very easy watching, but um, the main, like the boss from it is just like this very uncomfortable, like straight Christian white man just trying to be relatable to the kids. And I really think it's rubbing off on me. The gun hand movements that you're doing <laughs> while saying shouting. That's, that's, it's that for me. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm glad I could I be feel like performing that for you. Awkward white people trying to be cool is just me navigating life. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> okay. Continue, so, Shaldi. Um, B was Jewish and she was in a very segregated city. It was obviously racism. And then against all minorities, but particularly um, black Americans. And there was also anti-Semitism in the town. So she was feeling like a misfit. It was meaning that she was kind of always on the outer and she grew up painfully shy. The other thing was she was the tallest girl in her grade. And by the time she was about 12, she was five foot nine. Um, wow. Which is obviously very tall. Yeah. Yeah. And um, she didn't fit in. There was no way she could blend in. She was very different to everyone else around her. And she dreamed of being in show business. But, you know, she didn't fit the role. She wasn't – she wanted to be a short, blonde movie star um, and she grew up, like, reading movie magazines and dreaming of becoming a movie star. But that wasn't attainable for her in her eyes because she didn't look like them and she didn't sound like them because she had a really deep voice and she was really tall and she just didn't mm. fit in any of the boxes. And she came from and really no representation of that at all exactly. at the time. And to hide her insecurity, she started doing impressions, including Mae West, which she became quite well known for at a school. Oh, wow. For reference, what? we've covered Mae West. Talissa has covered Mae West. I know. And I didn't go back and check it out. That was going to be linked, but it's kind of cool. I love Mae West. I love when our gals link up. I Me really too. do. So you can take like Mae West was just someone who was just so different to everyone else in Hollywood at the time. And I think not that B wanted to be like May, but B and May. <laughs> like I'm talking about like no Beyonce. I was not actually Um Like she didn't <laughs> want to be like her, but she respected that she was just out there and different and, yeah, very unique. Yeah. Yeah, doing a thing. Yeah, and so at school B kind of got the title of, like, the wittiest girl at Cambridge High School. Oh, nice. And it's a title that she never really lost. She was always very quick off the mark and um, while she was shy and quiet, when she did get her words out, she was hilarious. I like that. Yeah. At 16 she developed a serious condition called coagulopathy, which is where her blood did not clot. So it was quite a serious condition. Mm. Um, so, yeah, she was quite sick. And to make sure that her health was looked after, um, they ended up sending her to a private boarding school and then she moved to a different school and then she moved to a different school. So she basically was at a couple of different schools before she graduated. And then she graduates from Blackstone College for Girls in Virginia and World War II breaks out. And in 1941, America gets involved in World War II I know because I Googled it. And in 1943, <laughs> B enlists as one of the first members of the United States Marine Corps Women's Reserve. Wow. Oh, excuse you. Right. So. A little miss. Yeah. I know. Helping the country, serving the people, et cetera. Um, so a bit about the, the group that she signed up to. Basically, the aim was to release male officers for combat. And they would have women in the reserves to kind of like hold down the fort and be trained just in case, but they would send men onto the front line. That was kind of their their goal with that. Yeah. Um, apparently it was really hectic, very demanding, and 
Um, yeah, so they did a lot of different roles. Um, they did professional roles, like clerical jobs, skilled trades out there as well, like, um, you know, fixing machinery and stuff like that. And they worked in sales, which I don't really understand what that has to do with the war, but like good for them. Yes, sales queen, get your get your oath. And um, yeah, and she worked as a typist in the end as well, but she didn't really enjoy that. She felt that was a bit like too far behind the scenes for her. So she ended up transferring to become a truck driver um, in which she actually worked her way up to become a sergeant. And in September 1945, when the war was over, she was honorably discharged. So she served a country. She kind of did her time helping out. Um, and then she could step back from that when the war had finished. And she started deciding what to do with the rest of her life. How old was she then? She's 23. Good on her. She's so young. She um, moves on from her time in the army so she's free she's kind of like what do I want to do who do I want to be who is this girl I see wow the song from Mulan staring straight back at me and she yeah she actually wrote that yeah exactly um and she loved chemistry so she decided to be a medical technician so she goes to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia as you do I know where she becomes a licensed medical technician and in the summer she spent it interning at a local hospital and was like I actually fucking hate this shit and I don't want to be here anymore because I'm just looking after people who are unwell and changing their nappies and and doing kind of gross work and that's not for me. Yeah. And you know what? Hats off to the nurses. They do incredible work. 100%. Not only do they keep people alive, they keep people comfortable, safe and, you know, calm and I really. And they cop all the slack. Yep. So she packs her things. She's like, this is not who I want to be. And she leaves for New York and in 1947 she moves to New York City to become, quote, someone else which I love. So 1947, she moves to New York. It's a very exciting time for her. She calls it the most exciting time of her life. It's said that she lives in this like shitty apartment with the bath in the kitchen and it costs her $15 a month. And Amazing. Um, I can't even remember what else, but there was just so many random things in this apartment that were lost, like, who? Who designed this? This because why wouldn't you want to sit in the bath but also be able to reach food in your fridge? That sounds iconic. I think right? that sounds like a dream. A of New York, baby. Yeah, exactly. Um, so she's in New York. She enrolls in the New School's famous dramatic workshop, which is run by German director Edwin Edwin Piscator, and her classmates include Harry Belafonte. Yeah. I knew that oh, name. Cool. And uh, a couple of years later, a 10-year-old Robert De Niro does classes there. So it's quite a big deal and it still runs. I mean, it's been kind of like reincarnated, but like Mark Ruffalo taught there a couple of years ago. Like it's still quite a significant um, place for people to learn. Marlon Brando went there, I'm pretty sure, as well. Like it was, it had a lot of big names that went through their doors. Fancy. And the guy who runs it, Piscata, Piscator, as Google Translate told me to pronounce it, Eddie. Ed, Eddie, yep. He loves B. He thinks that she is so brilliant. She's five foot nine and a half. Her deep voice is commanding and unique. And he casts her as the lead in Taming of the Shrew, the Shakespearean play. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Cool. And he actually starts putting her as a lead in a lot of different things. And she starts using her uniqueness to her advantage. She plays these really cool, powerful characters, but she can't find professional work. She gets sat down one day by one of the women in the course and just they say to her, you've got the talent, you've got the skill, 
but you just don't have the bone structure. Mm, that and classic bone structure. Yeah. Oh, it's so annoying. I know. And she, as she puts it, she was never asked to play Juliet. She played cool roles in theatre. And in classical theatre it kind of worked because there were these like powerful kind of commanding roles that they could like typecast her into. But, yeah, she was never asked to play a romantic lead. It just wasn't something that she was able to do because people didn't see her in that way. So she starts singing in nightclubs and reading like parts in this thing called show of shows and she does performances and stuff and it's kind of there that she's so nervous. She gets on stage, the music starts, she starts singing, the song ends. She doesn't even think to say, thank you so much, everyone. Here's my next song. It goes a little something. She just stands there and sings and the music ends and she just stands there (laughs) and the music starts again and she breathes and she starts again. It is she explains it as like the most uncomfortable experience ever, but it does make her come out of her comfort zone. <laughs> and one of the times when she's singing there, she sings a line and everyone starts laughing. She's like, what? what? But because the song's so romantic and she sung it so deadpan because she's so nervous, she's like, oh, that's comedy. Like I can be the, quote, straight man or like the, you know, serious one and people will find me funny. And that technique she kind of takes with her for the rest of her acting career. So that's, that's kind cool. of fun. Yeah. yeah. So professionally frustrated apart from these little like background gigs, but um, personally her life was blooming. So she marries a former Marine the year she starts at the drama school called Robert Allen Arthur and he becomes um, successful in his own right. Three years later they divorce, but she keeps the name Arthur, hence B. Arthur. Gotcha. So now she's at the school for a couple of years. She's doing those kind of side shows and and singing in theatres and stuff but not really getting anywhere. And she marries um, fellow student, actor and director Gene Sachs in 1950 and the two enter, quote, domestic bliss and they make audition rounds together. That's That's cute. Cute. Yeah. They can run lines together. Yeah, exactly. And they end up adopting two sons, Daniel, um, who becomes a set designer and before that they adopt a Matthew who becomes an actor but that obviously doesn't happen for another like 20 or so years but just to give you a bit of background on her family life it's also very hard to find information on her family because she's extremely private even though she becomes like one of the most biggest names in tv like Mm. everything is under lock she just doesn't want her private life kind of out there Mm. So back again. The year's 1954. She's just landed her first proper role. It's the part of Lucy Brown in the long-running off-Broadway hit The Three Penny Opera. It receives glowing reviews and out of nowhere this kind of becomes her first proper big break. Um, critics say that she's skillful, devastating and oozed comic demand and B was finally in demand as an actor. So Woo-hoo! it just took her... Um, what year did she start? She starts. It took her about five years before she even got her first like kind of bigger gig. Wow! Mm-hmm. You have to have passion. In nineteen, exactly. In nineteen sixty four, she's cast in the premiere, the first ever edition of Fiddler on the Roof. Cool. Well, she plays. I'm looking up the pronunciation again. Yente. That's how Google told me to say it. The matchmaker in that pull in that production, mm-hmm. and yeah, and so she actually got to basically create the role. She was the OG, which is kind of cool. Very cool. Yeah, and two years later, her husband is set to direct the musical Mame, and she auditions, but she doesn't get the lead, even though her husband's the director, which is kind of a good thing, but also like that would have been awkward at home. And the lead actually goes to Angela Lansbury. Yeah. So oh. yeah, the pot, the kettle. 
Exactly. That's what I was like, where do I know that name from? Just from Beauty and the Beast, but she actually has an extraordinary <laughs> career that we should yeah, she not. Did. She plays the kettle in Beauty and the Beast for yeah. reference. Yeah, it's actually a teapot, but yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, the teapot. What did I say? The kettle? The kettle. <laughs> An electronics version of Beauty and the Beast would be so good. <laughs> That's a good idea. Let's put that away for later. So she's in the supporting role and it's a good thing she accepts it and actually gets a supporting role because she wins a Tony for Best Supporting Actress in this role. Woo! Nice. Yeah. And so in the late 60s, early 70s, she's killing it on Broadway in the theatre scene and I'm not going to go into every role because we would literally be here all day. Um, Check IMBD for reference. And scroll, scroll all the way. Um, (laughs) Scroll, 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 scroll. Yeah. In 1971, a longtime admirer of hers, Norman Lear, who remember that name because he's a big player in her life, convinces her to do a guest appearance on the TV show All in the Family, which was a kind of successful TV show at the time, one of the bigger ones. And her character is Maud. She's a, a lead character's cousin. Um, and they're quite a conservative family with a man at the head of the family, Archie Bunker. And Archie Bunker, from everything I can read, is a typical gross male character who's like very headstrong and conservative and just like, ugh, you know? Ugh. Mm. Not a and fan. Not a fan. And she comes in and she is literally designed to be the polar opposite of him. Nice. So Amazing. she is a strong feminist, which is really out there for the time because this is 71. It's not a common thing to see on TV. Um, she's left wing and she's kind of bad bitch and she stands up for herself and has a lot to say and she literally is just going to do this one walk-in episode, but her character is really cool. And um, it goes to air and the head of CBS who owns the show sees it and the direct quote is, we must give her her own show. Wow. Cool. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah. So she lands the attention of CBS and the guy who's behind all in the family says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write it. Norman Lear. He loves um, B. He's actually a friend of hers, like outside of work and he's friends with her husband and stuff. So he's very um, – massive supporter of her and he says if you don't like it you don't have to be in it but if you do like it it's yours that's how we're going to do this I'm going to write the show I'm going to design the show and it's completely your choice but we're going to do it regardless we want you to do it it's based on you and it's based on this character Maud who had that walk-in part Mm -hmm. so a few months later they pitch B her own spin-off show called Maud where she'd be the same character as she was in All in the Family but she would be the lead and the focus of the show now the big deal was the this was the only show that had a female front and center apart from I Love Lucy who played a very you know kind of silly ditzy almost character um housewife character exactly and all the women on tv were these housewife characters with a set of pearls and very properly dressed and just Mm. kind of uh, a dominant male and a submissive female on screen that was very much the dynamic very much a family nuclear family kind of unit on screen and this is before shows like roseanne which kind of pushed against that a little bit so it was the first time on all of my family that all in the family, so that anyone had ever spoken back to Archie and they took that energy and made Maud into, like I said, her own kind of thing. So she was offered the show. She instantly loved it and she packed up her family of four and rented a house and just jumped at it. 
she devoted her whole life to the project. She credits it for destroying her marriage. Um, so her and Jean break up and that's that done. Um, she wanted the show to be so good and she believed in the show so much that she just gave it her everything. They'd work five days a week. Monday they come in and pitch all the ideas. Um, Tuesday they work through them and start filming for the end of the week. And um, even on the weekend she wasn't able to shut off because she'd just wake up and have these ideas to the show and need to start communicating them and working through them. Cool. Wow. Um, she describes it as a very collaborative experience and the character was actually based on Norman's strong feminist wife who was I very like controversial at the time. Yeah, but and and so every story they could kind of think like what would she do in this moment and play from that, which is kind of cool. Use her as a reference. Would you do this? Mm. Nah. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Maud was socially controversial, radical. She was the first strong female lead, like I said, on TV. And it explored issues that weren't being explored on TV sitcoms. Her character was strong-willed, intelligent and articulate, and so they could have really robust discussions between her and a more conservative member of the cast or, like, character or whatever. Yeah. And they could have these really impressive thoughtful conversations that weren't happening anywhere else and when I say like tv taboos like I'm talking the proper like stuff that was like not happening so firstly Mm. Maud lived with her fourth husband on the show Walter Finlay her divorced daughter Carol and Carol's younger son Philip so not your conventional family and not a family that you know is happily ever after they have got divorced there yeah. Maud had a gay BFF on the show, which is obviously a pro- problematic trope that we're, you know, we talk about now. It's not, we can't keep painting the only, you know, gay person on the show as the BFF, you know. Yeah. However, but at having this time, a gay representation on television at that time is, is mass, major. Exactly. And it wasn't just that, he was liked by every member of the car, like by the characters on the show. So he was just accepted yeah. like another person on the show, which was. Mm-hmm. Huge for the time. This is the 70s. Um, in an early episode, Maud hires a housekeeper um, who is a black woman and this is again after they've kind of started the civil rights movement through America and it explores like life post that movement. So um, segregation's over but there are still a lot of problematic um, and like more, what's the word but it's not like in your face, subtle. Racism. Underlying. Yeah, like underlying themes of racism that are still being experienced. And it's done through Maud, who's going over the top to try and make this black house cleaner not feel any sort of way, but actually she's putting her own foot in it. So it's done in a very yeah. funny way. She's the woke character, but it explores these issues that America was kind of like teething with at the time, like yeah. how to live mm. in a more united way, which they're still doing. So good for them. <laughs> really going well. <laughs> Um, it explores her husband's drinking and eventual alcoholism and even domestic violence. So there's one episode where he drinks excessively and becomes violent toward Maud. Wow. Which obviously was happening in real life, like in families around America, but not being discussed. And it opened a lot of doors for people to be able to talk about, um, to know mm. they're not alone. Unfortunately, it's kind of like you wish it was one isolated incident in the world, but it definitely affects a lot of people. And yeah. Um, the final episode of the show, she's, well, the final episode, she's given an opportunity to run for the New York State Senate, but her husband, Walter, is completely against it. And so she leaves him, um, 
because she doesn't want him to stand in her way. And that became a huge discussion around the US as part of the changing roles of women and the conflict they were facing in the 70s between having to choose between, quote, tradition and a career because it was mm-hmm. shown to them that you just can't have both. You've kind of got to have one or the other. You can't have both. And it's kind of only, what, in the last, would you say, like decade or two that we're kind of being shown, hey, you can try and have it all. Like, go for it. If you want to do it, do it. You probably won't. Something will probably suffer, but. Yeah, the world still holds us back from really achieving both things in a lot of ways. But, yeah, you're right. The conversation has obviously changed. Totally. But there are a lot more examples. Yeah, there are a lot more examples on screen of that sort of thing. But the episode that spoke out to me, I know I'm talking about this show a lot, but I think it was groundbreaking in a lot of ways. And that's why I want to kind of talk you through some of the main themes because these were the first, this was the first TV show that was doing these things. And I know it's a Mm. fictional show, but this sent ripples right across the country. And it, they, they credit this show, particularly for the issue I'm about to bring up for actually helping change people's opinions because they fell in love with these characters and they they cared for these characters and they watched them experience it, which, you know, like when you, when you know someone going through something, you can instantly understand it a bit better than if a stranger was going through it. It's bad, but mm. it's true. Yeah. It makes it a lot more relatable yeah. to them. It's just human nature. Yeah. yeah. So the episode that spoke to me the most was an iconic two-part episode about abortion. Wow. It was the first TV show ever to have an abortion storyline on it. There were story there were TV shows in the past that had alluded to the fact that it happened in the past, but they'd never had a TV show where the character had to decide whether or not to have an abortion and and what their decision was. So it was written by a woman named Susan Harris, Austin Kalish, and also Irma Kalish. I think they must be related, but Susan goes on to write Golden Girls, funnily enough. So she's a very mm. talented writer. Um, and it Ooh. addressed Maud because Maud is 47 in the show and she finds out that she's pregnant and she has to decide with her husband, Walter, whether or not she should have an abortion. Um, they talk openly on the show about vasectomies and her friend asks why she's not on the pill. Maud explains that it gives her migraines. It's like, can you do more research into other, you know, birth control things, please and thank you, scientists, anyone out there listening? Um, that'd be great. Um, and it shows her inability to decide. Like she's very conflicted. Um, it's set in New York where abortion has just been legalised like the year before in Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Um, CBS didn't want it to run. They offered notes and um, they originally said no and then said, okay, well, if you're going to present a story where the woman chooses abortion, can you please have a friend in there who presents an opposing point of view? So they agreed to add a friend of Maud's who's pregnant. She's got four kids and she can't afford to keep them all, but she refuses to go down the path of abortion, which is totally fine, totally valid. Good to have all the viewpoints. Of course. And it's those two having a really emotion, emotional conversation about a really a real real life thing it's it's a tough decision to yeah. make for sure for anyone um they still weren't happy though the director still wasn't like the cbs weren't happy so the director puts his foot down and he says if you don't want to run it that's fine but i will not make any replacement episodes you either run these episodes or the show doesn't go for three weeks that's fine your choice um and because he'd made the show before this one that was so successful and it had a couple of other things in the works they he had a lot of power and yeah he put his foot down and it worked. The show went to air. That's cool. Amazing. Um, yeah. So uh, three TV stations opted not to air the episode, um, but 
one cave to public outcry in the end and did air it. And um, when it did air, thousands of viewers wrote letters in protest um, about the topic of abortion. There was also a lot of support for it too. And like I said, it is credited to changing the opinions of everyday Americans, yeah. some obviously on this yeah. issue. Um, even and though starting taboo conversations or exactly. taking away the taboo behind certain conversations. Yeah. yeah. CBS calculated that 65 million viewers saw at least one of the abortion episodes, um, whether it be on the first run that it had or the rerun. When it did rerun, I think it was 40 TV stations said they weren't going to run it because they knew what was coming and they said no. Um, but despite that, it became one of the most watched episodes of a television program ever. That's huge. Um, it held a top 10 spot in the Nielsen ratings um, for the first four seasons that it ran. And that's despite the CBS changing it from a night television program to a day television program and back and forth. Like they never really held it, you know, like MasterChef 730, whatever channel, like it's always in the same spot. This did not hold the same mm. post. So that meant that viewers were so. Um, in love with it and so interested in watching that they would follow it no matter where it went, which is also cool. That's very unique. It's very big. In 1978, she decided to move on from from the series. Her thoughts were that they'd kind of covered every topic and they started coming to her with ideas for episodes that just didn't really feature anything controversial or different or taboo. And she kind of said, well, what's the point? Then we're just like every other sitcom. So she walked away. It ran for six seasons. She was nominated for five Emmy Awards and she landed a win in 1977 for Best Leading Actress. Um, She was also nominated for a ton of Gold Globe Awards for the role as well but never won one of those. So she did um, films. um, She did one opposite Lucille Ball. um, And during this time she became something of a gay icon. So she would host fabulous dinner parties at her house in L.A. where the guests were mostly gay men um, who, due to the laws of the time and the society, were closeted. So they would go there and be able to be themselves and be as fabulous and flamboyant or or not as they wanted to be, um, which they weren't able to do when they were out in public. So it was Mm -hmm. a very special place for a lot of them. Her son describes it like this. The men were drawn to Arthur like moths to a porch light. The men were always so excited to come over the house. That's what he said. Um, oh. He was only a little kid at the time and he was kind of enthralled, like, watching it all happen. He loved it. Yeah, so she was basically a, a confidant for a lot of uh, queen men at the time. She did a couple of acting jobs in between, but her next big one was in 1985 at the age of 63 where she officially became a golden girl. Thank you for being a friend. Travel. So Golden Girls was a sitcom written by Susan Harris that originally aired on NBC from September 14, 1985. Now, you need to remember a couple of things about this. She was 63, landing one of the biggest roles of her life. Huge. Women in Hollywood, like, disappear after 40. So the Mm -hmm. fact that they had four women Mm -hmm. basically over the age of 60 as their lead cast was beyond yeah, anything, anything one could imagine. A really big deal. Iconic. Exactly. It's the plot of four older single women, three widows and one divorcee who share a house in Miami. B played Dorothy, who was a divorced mother and a substitute teacher. Then obviously there was Blanche um, played um, and then Bl- 
Betty White was in there as well as Rose and Estelle Getty who played Sophia, um, which was B's character's mum. Dorothy was practical, sarcastic, easily angered and followed current events and just had like the witty one-liners. She just was the reality check to some of the characters who could be very um, exaggerated at times. Is she your favourite? My favourite was um, Blanche growing up, not going to lie. What was your favourite? Do you have a favourite? Not really. I haven't watched a lot of Golden Girls, though. I hate to admit it. Never watched it. What? Are you guys I've kidding? Dabbled. No, I know. Now I'm going to. I really want to. It's so good. I watched it growing up. You, I think you can find, like, there's a lot of clips on YouTube. That's where I've been, like, over the last YouTube. couple of days I've been researching and I've been like, oh, this is research and just, like, watching old clips. But watching I think I used to watch it. Yeah. I think I used to watch it on TV. It was, like, a rerun back in the day. Yeah, I do. That's when I watched yeah. a bit of it on TV during the day and stuff when you were home, school, home from school sick. Exactly. The reason I'm bringing up all these shows is because, again, this was groundbreaking stuff. Like we talked about obviously having a cast of older women already groundbreaking. It tackled issues like gaslighting, deportation, interracial marriage, suicide, addiction, gay rights, and HIV and AIDS, and especially like the fear that was instilled into people about the um, HIV and AIDS crisis. The way it was handled by governments and things like that was obviously disgusting at the time and they tried to help break some of that stigma through some of the episodes Mm -hmm. the golden girls came to an end when b arthur chose to leave the series the hour-long series finale aired in may 1992 and was watched by 27.2 million viewers and i did a bit of research that makes it the 17th most watched television finale ever cool to this day number one i looked it up is mash bloody mash so another one that you watch when you're at home sick. So question, how many seasons in total are there of Golden Girls? So there were seven um, seasons and 180 episodes. That's a lot. And it ran from 1985 to 1992. But also when B did decide to leave, when she kind of felt like she had enough of it, they actually had a spin-off show with the three other main cast members. It wasn't as successful, but it meant that they, you know, could continue their character journey where B was ready to step back and do something else. That's fair. Um, cool. She was nominated for four Emmys while on the show, and in 1988 she won Outstanding Lead Actress. She was also nominated Woo-hoo! for four Golden Globes. Now, with the Emmy nominations, I should say, she still holds the record for the most number of um, Emmy nominations in that category. Um, the only people that beat her are Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Mary Tyler Moore, who was on. This is um, in the Best Actress in a Comedy category for yes. Golden Globes. Is that what you're yes, saying? that's right. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so it's a big achievement for her. Um, also, fun fact, and I read this in, on a random website, so I'm just going to take it with a grain of salt. You can as well. It is Queen Elizabeth II's, well, it's one of her favourite shows, is Golden Girl. And the cast were asked to perform live for her at the Queen Mother's request in 1988. <laughs> I'm going to cool? take that as fact, baby. Yep. Um, the Queen has to watch something. True. And she can't watch The Crown, so. Oh, as if you wouldn't. You'd have to be that much of a narcissist. Yeah, 100%. It's like watching a reality show about yourself. But, like. If your face is on a coin, you've got to watch a TV show about yourself. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, imagine your face being on a coin. Actually, I'd prefer it to be on a note, <laughs> the places it would go. Um, her last 
kind of big role was a handful of one-woman shows that B did. So one of them was called An Evening with B Arthur, in which she was nominated for a Tony Award and it travelled around America. And in 2002, she travelled to Sydney and Melbourne for her show called And Then There's B, which I think is a sick name. <laughs> That's so cool. So, yeah, her last kind of big role is herself. She has a couple other random things. Like she's nominated for an Emmy for a walk-on role in Malcolm in the Middle, which is so random. Like there's lots of random things on her resume. While B was very different to the roles of Maud and Dorothy, they were loud, she was quiet, they were outspoken, she spent a lot of her life being more reserved. She was a long-time equal rights advocate for women and an advocate for the elderly and Jewish communities in both her TV roles but also through charity work and speaking events and stuff. She started doing as she got older. She started to have a life incredibly shy but as she got older, like a fire started burning in her and she started kind of doing um things that would support others. Um, She originally said that she didn't like that Maud made people think she was the, quote, Joan of Arc for feminism um, because she felt like that wasn't the case. She said she wasn't a radical feminist and didn't think that people should just assume that of her. But later on in her life, especially after her second divorce, she starts talking about how marriage uh, is bad and how gender roles are like really restricting on women. And so she starts talking a lot of feminist topics very publicly, which makes me think like, baby, you're a feminist. You're a feminist. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's a bit of a different, the conversations would have different weight at that time. Although in saying that, I mean, I I always, whenever women say that they're not feminists, I'm like, mate, you really are. But I also think it's really unfair that we always, we tend to ask female um, celebrities that question and not really male celebrities. And it really is like, I'm like, it's just, it's too much of a gotcha moment. It's like. No, but it's the same with everything. It's not just feminism. You're right. You're making a very good point because they are human beings with their own thoughts, feelings and emotions about things. And um, they are instantly put on pedestals when they are in the spotlight doing whatever they do whether that be a politician whether that be a celebrity whether that be an influenza whatever that you're put you're you're influencing you're on a pedestal people are looking up to you and you're a prime suspect for ridicule if you don't believe what people think you should believe yes and no because if a politician isn't a feminist that means they don't value me as a constituent in the same way that they value my partner or my brother or my dad. I don't, I don't respect that. Um, I think that there's nothing wrong with asking. I think you though, why aren't we asking everyone? That's kind of the point that I agree with. Like we shouldn't be trying to do a gotcha moment for a female celebrity at the same time. If I'm going to like, yeah, exactly. That's what I was getting at. And also there is a certain responsibility when you are in those positions and I don't, like I don't think there's excuses for people who disregard that responsibility. I I agree, and I but I but I will say I think the reason they asked her is because she was playing these really stark feminist roles, and yeah. they were like a beacon to a lot of women around America as mm. someone that they could look up to and be like, well, I feel like that. That it's okay to like that. She kind of. Even though she said she didn't want to be, she was a beacon for feminists. She was someone who was in the public eye in these characters who they were different to the status quo. And I think that's why people were really interested in asking her about her politics, which they did in pretty much every interview that I watched. They mm. they did. And whether that's fair or not is neither here nor there, but I do understand why they wanted to know. Which is also hard when you're an actor because you're playing a part. And That's the other thing too. 
Yeah. Later on in life, she actually says that the reason she thinks that Maud and Dorothy were such successful characters because the, and because they were so believable is because they held the same values as she did. So she does end up saying that in public interviews. I think. Well, you got to take that responsibility on then. Yeah. And she gets a lot more confident in her activism and outspokenness as she gets older. Like the older she gets through her life, the more she feels okay to speak about these things more openly. From she's she's talked about them on TV as a character, but she starts as B starts talking about them properly. Um so she speaks about, you know, like I said, women's women's quote, women's issues. Um she's an advocate for women's equality, the rights of the elderly and especially Jewish populations as a Jewish woman. And she also recognizes that she's a gay icon which she has literally become um, <laughs> to the point where, like, there are still golden girl references in all of RuPaul's Drag Race. There are still golden girl nights held around the world in queer spaces because they love and respect what they did so much. Um, and she recognises how much the support from the LGBTQIA plus community gave her throughout her career. And like I said, she becomes an outspoken ally for them. In 2005, her friend Ray Clausen, he's also a set designer um, from like way back when, um, told her about an organisation in New York that was in dire need of money. It was called the Ali Forney Centre and it helped give accommodation to support LGBTQIA plus youth who were sleeping rough or homeless or having a really tough run. She flew from LA to New York where she hated flying and it was the middle of winter. She hated the cold. Um, and she organized a benefit performance. Um, it was a re- rendition of her one woman show, um, which she performed in and it raised $40,000 for the center from the one benefit night. That's um, incredible. Yeah. Huge. She would go on to advocate for the centre until her death, telling Next Magazine, um, these kids at Ali Forney Centre are literally dumped by their families because they're lesbian, gay or transgender. This organisation is really saving lives. So she dedicates a lot of her life to supporting causes, including that centre. Um, she was a private person right up until her death, but she would put that to the side to try and advocate for these marginalised groups. In 2009, on the 25th of April, B. Arthur died of lung cancer just two weeks shy of her 87th birthday. Four days later, Broadway went dark. New York's Broadway theatre district turned its lights off to pay tribute to Arthur and the legacy she left behind. That September, a public tribute was held for her where her friends paid tribute to the actress, including um, some of the cast of the Golden Girls and Angela Lansbury that were quite um, open about their friendship, um, Angela calling her a long li- lifelong bosom buddy, which is fun. <laughs> You're my bosom buddies. All my fanny friends. <sighs> Back at you. Whatever you prefer. Um, B wasn't done, though, in her will. She left $100,000 for the American Indian College Fund and $300,000 to the Ali Forney Centre, which is a centre that she helped. Six years later, in 2017, an 18-bed residence for homeless LGBTIA plus youth was opened by the centre and it will forever be known as the B. Arthur Residence. That's amazing. What a legacy. And that is the story of B. Arthur. What a great yeah. legacy. Yeah. So she was so proud of the work she did on Maud. She'd wake up at 4 a.m. every morning and watch reruns on her TV and just smile and beam with pride because the things that they were talking about, the things that they did, um, she was, you know, quite an extraordinary character and, and a big advocate for a lot of different important causes. So she was a very, very cool lady. 
Yeah. But isn't that the goal to be able to, you know, be at that stage of your life and just look back on your body of work and be like, I made a difference. Like, I think that's really yeah, cool. Huge. that story bosom buddy yeah thank you don't worry my bosom buddies you're my golden girl <laughs> well if you would like to suggest anyone else that we should cover we've had another suggestion this week that i'm thinking about doing next week which i'm excited about um don't hesitate hesitate to contact us uh we are on social media at instagram fierce females podcast or facebook fierce females of history you can reach us via email at fiercefemalesofhistory at gmail.com. Or for something completely different, why don't you take the music from our theme song and add some lyrics and we'll get in touch with you that way. <laughs> Woo! We great, we need some we need some words. We just got we just got How do you sing to that? Fierce females are coming at you. <laughs> Eardrums. I'm gonna stop singing now. Amazing. We could do a better job than that, but I'm excited to hear yeah. it. Look, that's that's the bar. Pretty low. <laughs>